Trump investigations, an election season in high gear. Well, I can't imagine being indicted. I've done nothing wrong. Former President Trump lashes out, and a special master is appointed to review files the FBI seized from his home. Meanwhile, the Justice Department issues dozens of subpoenas connected to 2020 election lies and the Capitol attack. It's been a large volume of information that we really pressed hard for the agency to release. As the January 6th committee says it has new evidence. Plus. One party's focused on jobs. That's us. The other is focused on a nationwide, on nationwide abortion bans. That's the extreme MAGA Republicans. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham introduces a bill to federally ban abortions. The American people cannot afford another year of failed Democrat one-party rule. As the battle to control Congress heats up, next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. It was another busy week of news about multiple federal investigations into former President Trump and his allies. On Thursday, a federal judge appointed a special master to review the documents taken by the FBI during its search of former President Trump's home. The judge also ruled that the DOJ will continue to be blocked from accessing the roughly 100 classified files seized for its use in its criminal investigation. Now, that came after former President Trump blasted the DOJ on the U. Hewitt Show. I have the absolute right to declassify. Well, I can't imagine being indicted. I've done nothing wrong. Look, if it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. Now, despite Trump's claims that he declassified the documents, his lawyers have actually avoided making that exact assertion in court. And a number of former Trump administration officials have said they believe that claim is patently false. Meanwhile, this week, the New York Times also reported that the DOJ issued 40 subpoenas to members of Trump's inner circle, and at least two top Trump advisors had their phones seized. Reports say the actions show a substantial escalation of the DOJ investigation into Trump's efforts to subvert the 2020 election. Joining me to discuss this and more, Josh Gerstein, the senior legal affairs reporter for Politico, Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post, and joining me around the table, Zolan Kanu Youngs, White House correspondent for The New York Times, and Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. So thank you all for being here. Josh, I have to start with you. The judge here is giving the special master until November 30th a deadline to review these files. And the DOJ is expected in a filing to ask an appeals court to step in. So what more do we know about how all of this impacts the investigation and the impact of this special master? Well, right now, Yamish, the investigation remains basically on hold, at least as regards um, any of the classified uh, documents and even more broadly, uh, all the records that Trump had down there at Mar-a-Lago. That's why uh, the Justice Department is uh, taking this issue uh, to a federal appeals court, because they believe it's basically uh, unprecedented for a federal judge to say you have to basically halt your investigation. Now, she did say you can continue to do what's basically a, a damage assessment of what might have been the national security harm from these records being down at Mar-a-Lago. But the Justice Department's position so far has been that there's really no practical way to do that uh, without involving the criminal investigators who know, for example, 
who was there at Mar-a-Lago, who might have seen these documents. And you can't really separate that from an effort to figure out um, what the damage is uh, resulting from the presence of the records down there. And with all those questions, there's also big questions about this special master. We know that he's a former New York judge. What more do we know about the person that has been appointed here? He's already saying that he wants to have a conference next week in Brooklyn, New York. Right. So he's based in Brooklyn. His name is Raymond Deary. He is a, a Reagan uh, appointee. He's uh, very well respected, I think, across the political uh, spectrum. Obviously, he's been on the bench for quite a long time as a Reagan appointee. He's in senior status, which is sort of a usually a semi-retired position. He served for a time on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which handles sensitive um, national security matters. I think the big question here is not so much him, but his very, very broad role that Judge Cannon, the judge down in Florida, is according to Deary here, not just to look at attorney-client privilege, but possibly executive privilege, and really to, at least in the first instance, decide uh, issues of law that most special masters don't decide. They usually decide issues like which box does this document fit in, not does this box exist. And, and that's really the central question uh, in this dispute between the president and the Justice Department at this stage. And in talking about this dispute, Susan, um, I want to go back to the sound that we played in the open. Former President Trump said, quote, you'd have a lot of problems in this country, the likes of which you've perhaps never seen. You told our producers that this is chilling, given what we know about and about what happened on January 6th. Explain your reaction and your and, and to this, to the president saying this, to the it, former president saying this. It's hard to listen to the words he used to not believe that he's threatening violence by his supporters. If he gets indicted, this is really just uh, extraordinary. And we know from January 6th how followers of President Trump listened to his words. We know that his words fueled these demonstrators to come to Washington, fueled them to march to the Capitol, and they felt were basically marching orders to break in. And so I think it is, I think it is uh, of, of great concern that he would use language like that, uh, because, because we know January 6th is not over. January 6th was not an event that happened uh, back on January 6th. And we are now just dealing with the particulars of it. This is, uh, reflects a movement and a mood and an assault on democracy that we are continuing to have to deal with as a country. This has and got to also frustrate Republicans and really fuel, because it also fuels Democrats and specifically the White House's kind of recalculated message of the past couple weeks, which is to frame the Republican Party and specifically former President Donald Trump as one of extremists and, and espousing extremist views and encouraging political violence. When you have interviews views like that, it almost does kind of backs that speech that President Biden gave in Philadelphia, many would say. So as Republicans also try to pinpoint the uh, flaws in the economy and flaws with the Biden administration, when you have the former president giving an interview like that, it kind of backs some of the messaging that you're seeing coming out of the White House that trying to make this upcoming election a real choice between democracy or one that could encourage such violence. And Josh, uh, what Zolan's talking about, all of this is sort of up in the air as we think about the fact that there could be even more classified documents out there. We heard from a lawmaker that said that, that, that the law, that lawmakers on Capitol Hill were told by the National Archives that there could be more information out there. Former President Trump is claiming that he's declassified everything and anything that basically that he walked out of the White House with. What's your take on this, given your reporting? Well, I mean, one issue people are concerned about, Yamish, is that there were all these empty folders that were found down there that we saw in that image uh, from 
uh, Trump's office or Trump's closet down there uh, with markings on them like top secret, secure, comp compartmented information, and, and maybe even higher levels of classification. And at this point, the Justice Department just cannot be sure that those records uh, have been accounted for, whether they were shown to anyone else, uh, whether they might be in any other places that Trump used uh, during his presidency. So it remains uh, an issue of significant concern. That said, I do think that there is something to his argument that presidents do have very, very broad authority over classified information. And so uh, I do have some doubts that at the end of the day, if there's a criminal charge against former President Trump, that the central part of it is going to be mishandling classified information. I think it's more likely to be found in an area, perhaps obstruction of justice or something along those lines that sidesteps uh, some of those constitutional questions. That's so interesting, Josh, just thinking about sort of what could end up if there is an indictment of Trump, what could be sort of the thing that would happen? Mariana, I want to bring you in because the other thing that we talked about, of course, is the January 6th committee. They're talking about having a new hearing. We heard from the January 6th committee chair this week, Benny Thompson, saying that they're getting troves of information from the Secret Service. What more do we know about this evidence that's coming in and how lawmakers want to use it? Yeah, you know, these lawmakers in particular have a timeline. We don't know the results of the midterm election yet, but a lot of people already saying that it's likely going to switch to a Republican majority. We know that if that happens, Minority Leader McCarthy has said, you know what, we're going to disband this committee. So really right now what the lawmakers on the January 6th panel are trying to do is get as much information as possible. You mentioned that the trove of Secret Service. That's just one part of it. Uh, and I know that that's something that they would, if they have a hearing, I know there's been certain dates that have been discussed for likely later this month. That could be a part of it. They also want to try and talk to a number of former Trump officials, still get more information from Mark Meadows, if possible, as well as uh, Tony Ornato, who's a deputy chief of staff at the time. And there's some actual back and forth among lawmakers about how much information they have and how much time do they have to even plan a hearing. So it's likely that they could maybe even hold hearings in October, maybe November after the midterms. One thing that Democrats don't really want to talk about right now is things like this. January 6th, they want to keep their messaging um, on, on abortion, on other things that may likely help them maybe keep the majority. So that's another consideration that some of these lawmakers are weighing, how much attention to bring to the January 6th committee right now when Republicans could attack them for being too partisan. And Josh, back to you, because you're the legal reporter on this panel. So I have to ask you again another legal question, which is, what do these subpoenas mean? We have the DOJ handing out some 40 subpoenas, along with the fact that there seem to be in negotiations with the January 6th committee for information. Well, there's a definite broadening of the public part of this DOJ investigation. What they've been doing behind the scenes, we don't really know. But with all these subpoenas going out, we know that they're looking into the fundraising by President Trump's uh, Save America group, especially around the election recount. Um, did uh, money really go, for example, uh, to, to that purpose? Uh, was there some uh, law violation in connection with that? rally that was organized, at least purportedly organized by a women uh, women for Trump uh, group. So these are the areas that the investigation is spreading into, as well as uh, the issue of those elector slates from Republican uh, officials in states that Biden actually won, where they put forward slates that some would say 
are fraudulent. One aspect of the cooperation between the committee or the lack of it and the Justice Department is, you know, the Justice Department is about to start a very, very big trial. In 10 days, they're supposed to open the first seditious conspiracy trial involving the Oath Keepers, uh, the first of what could be two or three seditious conspiracy trials. Five defendants are supposed to go on the stand. And one of the problems here is, you know, if the House starts dribbling out documents, it's going to just cause a, a hellish disruption in that trial because there's going to be demands for the rest of the committee's documents and that there was a partial disclosure and that it's all coming yeah. so late that they can't process it. So uh, those kinds of interactions may be why the committee has decided not to put out more of its evidence right now. But well, we really see these competing timelines, right? The Justice Department clearly getting their investigate, their meticulous investigation going a little faster. The special appointment of the special master definitely slowing down that process. And the House committee seeing this deadline looming because it is entirely likely that Republicans will win control of the House. That committee will be disbanded. Whatever they need to do, they need to do it as quickly as possible. And it means that we go into, this is the first time we've been in this situation in this country. We go into a midterm election where we're still debating fiercely the outcome of the previous election, and that is likely to be a situation we'll find even in the next presidential election. Well, Susan, you really wrote the segue to the next part of this show, which is about the midterms. So I want to thank you, Josh, for all of your reporting and, and breaking down all of the legal aspects of this and for sharing your reporting. Um, the other thing, of course, that Susan just talked about on Tuesday, the last midterm primary elections, the 2022 cycle were held in Delaware, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. And as in other primaries, a number of Trump-backed House and Senate congressional candidates one big that came, though, as Republicans and Democrats alike were surprised when GOP Senator Lindsey Graham revealed his plans for a 15-week federal, federal abortion ban. I think ban. we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. Democrats immediately fired back. So to anyone who thought they were safe, who thought, I'm in a blue state, I'll be fine, here is the painful reality. Republicans are coming after your rights. Meanwhile, on Tuesday at the White House, President Biden held a celebration for the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Yet a worse-than-expected inflation report was released hours before the event that led many Republicans to pointedly criticize the president. And finally, because there was, as I said, a lot of news, also dominating the headlines this week, Republican governors flying migrants to Democrat-led cities. Ron DeSantis of Florida flew migrants to the popular vacation island of Martha's Vineyard. And Greg Abbott of Texas left asylum seekers outside the vice president, Kamala Harris's Washington, D.C. home. So, Susan, back to you before I jump to Suzanne, because I want to bring you in, too. I want to ask you about the primaries. We saw New Hampshire, a Trump-backed candidate, um, beat out yet again. This, the, the story happened all over the country, a Republican establishment candidate. I wonder what you make of that race and also what it's just t told us about this primary season. You know, it happened in... Uh, New Hampshire, it happened in, in Maryland, it happened in Arizona, it happened in Vermont. The Trumpiest candidate in these contested primaries is the one that wins the nomination. What does that tell us? It tells us that Donald Trump continues to have enormous sway over the Republican Party and the argument that, he, that he's backing less electable candidates does not convince Republican primary voters to walk away 
from his legacy and his approach to politics. Zillin, you're nodding your head, jump in here. No, absolutely. I mean, just because Trump's not on the ballot doesn't mean Trumpism is not on the ballot. And as you were saying, you know, the idea that we're still, even at this midterm election, still in these elections, uh, in these primaries, basically litigating who the rightful president is and at, at the point still having candidates who are outright denying yeah. some of the results of the previous election says a lot about where we are right now with our democratic system and our political it's, discourse as well. It's head spinning and Mariana, of course, you're at the center of recovering Congress. Now, there was some interesting reporting. You had Nancy Pelosi saying not only are, are, are Democrats going to hold on to control of the House, they're going to win and expand their majority. But Punchbowl News, our friends at the newsletter, they say that Behind closed doors, Chuck Schumer is saying that Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats are in trouble. What are you hearing? I'm hearing exactly that. Many people were wondering why Pelosi was so optimistic. You definitely felt on the House side, this is the first week that they came back after a six-week recess, you definitely felt the upbeat mood that Democrats were feeling. And it came after Senator Graham and also there was a companion bill in the House that was introduced, that federal ban that they think, you know, when we're talking about being on the campaign trail, talking about making a difference between Democrats and Republicans, well, this is the extreme MAGA Republicans who are just going to take away more of your freedom. So they were feeling that energy, but many people were that I've talked to both members, aides, thinking maybe Pelosi was feeling too much of that energy. One thing to know, of course, during that press conference, she got asked if she wants to still stay in leadership, regardless of what happens in November. A lot of aides and, and a couple of members that I talked to yesterday as well, thinking, you know, you can't say and project negativity that you might lose the majority, that you may not keep Certainly. all these seats, that it might be a blowout. So that is likely a bit of where that's coming from on and, Pelosi's end. And Mariana, you, you touched on it, but of course, Lindsey Graham, he, he introduced this federal ban on abortions after 15 weeks. What motivated him to do this at this exact time and how are Republicans and Democrats responding to it? You know, he was asked that question during that press conference that you played, and he simply said, it's the women standing behind me. Those are a number of women who are, are heads of pro-life groups, anti-abortion groups, and they for a while have been pushing him and also Chris Smith, a Republican on the House side, to update this legislation that Chris Smith has actually been reintroducing Congress after Congress after Congress that would put a federal ban in place. It went from 20 weeks to 15 weeks. But, you know, even... Um, Lindsey Graham said, I didn't talk to McConnell about this. I really haven't talked to my colleagues about this either. And you heard the repercussions of that. Many Republicans saying, why are we talking about this right now? It's not necessarily an issue that we want to be talking about because we don't have the upper hand at the moment. Let's focus instead on, you know, the fact that Biden is holding an event on the Inflation Reduction Act at a time when we're still seeing inflation on the rise. None of that helped Republicans as they tried to regain the narrative ahead of the midterms elections. Susan, you've been covering the issue of women's rights and um, politics for so long. What do you make of what Lindsey Graham just did here? And what are you hearing? Because the word on the street is that Republicans were looking at Lindsey Graham like, excuse me, why? Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, uh, if, if Republicans lose control of the Senate, 
uh, which now seems entirely, I mean, failed to gain control of the Senate, which now looks entirely possible. It will be their own fault. It will be the self-inflicted wounds, including Lindsey Graham raising the issue of a national abortion ban after many Republicans argued our, the real point of supporting the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade was it's an issue that we should leave to the states. Well, this is the reverse of that. Nominating candidates that are to the far to the farthest right in these some of these contested Senate races, where it's not the strongest possible Republican candidate who who could have uh, been nominated, letting the letting the conversation not be focused squarely on inflation, which is their and, and now crime, their best issues. If Republicans don't do well. Uh, as well as we expected them to do a month or two months ago, they're going to have themselves to blame. And Zellan, I want to bring you in because I know we're talking about abortion, but the other big issue here were these migrants being flown all over the country. And you've covered immigration better than almost any reporter that I know. So I want to ask you about this. Um, the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, she said, quote, of this, they used them like political pawns, treated them like chattel in a cruel, premeditated political stunt. What do you make of what we're seeing here and the repercussions, the political sort of implications of all this, but also the human toll? I'm thinking about migrants who are coming to the country fleeing violence and finding themselves dropped off in random cities. Yeah, I think it's important to describe who these people are, right? I mean, many Venezuelans, many South Americans who are fleeing uh, uh, violence, but also poverty, right, that are coming to the country, many of which, even if they haven't started the process yet, were told by their lawyers likely to seek asylum. Um, this, this tactic uh, isn't, while it has been used to retaliate against Democrats, just to give you an idea of how once taboo it is, go back to no November 2018 and the Trump administration, uh, and you have a Stephen Miller-led effort to basically go and try and pressure ICE officials at the time to basically do this on the federal level. Take migrants at the border, bring them to San Francisco to retaliate against Nancy Pelosi, other cities to retaliate against Democrats. Just to give you an idea of how polarizing this is, Matt Albans at the time, deputy director of ICE, I don't think anybody, I'd be challenged to find anyone who would say he is um, uh, soft on immigration, um, says, no, we can't do this. You know, he basically rejected that proposal out of concerns, out of uh, liability for the safety of those migrants by doing this, as well as saying that the budget didn't appropriate, that ICE didn't have the authority to essentially do that. Now you have states doing it themselves, and it really does show you both uh, the tactic that we've seen before congressional elections, Republicans leaning into anti-immigrant sentiment to try and galvanize a base, but also it just doesn't solve the overall issue at hand, which is a broken immigration system. Democrats and Republicans would say that. But this doesn't solve the issue at hand whatsoever, which is a backlog court system and a lack of consistency when it comes to the border. And it, it's so striking that you're saying that this was this tactic was seen as just too out there for the Trump administration, and now it's sort of being normalized. In fact, um, look at 1962. It was a tactic absolutely. used by white citizen councils in the South to convince uh, African-Americans, blacks, to get on buses and go to northern places, including <laughs> Hyannisport, where the president had a summer house. This is not a the kind of historical comparison mm -hmm. that Governor DeSantis should be wanting to yeah. make. And Mariana, in the, in the last minute we have here, I know you, you, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. You've been talking to Latino voters about sort of how uh, both parties are, are trying to get at them and trying to win their votes. We only have about a minute left, but please talk to me a little bit about your reporting and how it connects to all of this, especially as we're thinking about inflation and all the other things, but also immigration. 
Yeah, you know, this is the first election since 2020 where we saw Democrats lose drastically a solid base in South Florida, also along the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. And Democrats have been making many more investments, historic investments, incorporating a number more, uh, a number of Latino operatives to advise a number of campaigns starting earlier than usual, but Republicans have already been there for some time. So a lot of Democrats I've been talking to say, you know what, it's good that we're laying the ground now. Finally, they're listening to us. However, it might take some time to actually see those voters come back. Latinos still tend to vote Democratic, but Republicans very much making gains. And you're seeing many more Republican uh, Hispanic women and men run for office, which is also an, an, an appeal, allowing a lot of these voters to say, oh, look, there's Republicans in the party who look like me. Maybe I can be open to them. And there's the issues of, of course, economy um, and how that affects both men, women, different generations, that is really going to make an interesting Certainly. story post-midterm election about our communities. Certainly. Well, thank you to our panel for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And before we go, don't forget to watch PBS News Weekend on Saturday. Anchor Jeff Bennett will interview retired Lieutenant General Russell Honoré on Jackson, Mississippi's water crisis and how to prevent future infrastructure failures. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Yamiche Alcindor. Good night from Washington.